Escape from Plan A. Hey everyone, welcome to Escape from Plan A. I'm your host today, Diana, and it's just me and team today. Yay! What's going on? Uh, so we're here today to talk about this amicus brief that the AAJC, or I guess it's a whole consortium that includes um, AAJC, like a lot of other Asian American, Chinese American, and um, scientific community people. And also, Fred Korematsu's daughter is one of them. I thought that was pretty interesting. The whole Asian American civil rights community. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real who's who of people right now. As a response to U.S. versus Tao, Feng Tao, a.k.a. Franklin Tao. And he is a scientist, Chinese-American, I believe. He was suspected of being a, you know, like Chinese spy or something before he was eventually acquitted. Of all charges, all the charges against him were dropped. Um, but the amicus is just kind of like a, a broad summary of what the government has been doing starting in the last 10 years or so, but ramping up a lot since um, 2018, which is they're just um, having all the federal funding agencies for STEM ask all of the universities to basically report on the researchers there. So, like, they're saying if there's any kind of non-disclosure about China to report it to the FBI. You know, this includes a lot of really banal stuff, you know, like any kind of, like, documentation that's wrong. It, instead of being an administrative issue with the university, they're just, you're just sending it to the FBI to be investigated. And some of it is really fucked up. And um, this briefing is just kind of an overall summary of what's been happening and they're emphasizing the racial just profiling and the discriminatory nature of it like for me you know like having been in science it like really pisses me off and i like you brought this up that this was a thing so i kind of wanted to get your professional like legal opinion on all of this stuff as well so i thought we could just like discuss what it says you know kind of contextualize it within how science works and how fucked up it is and broadly overall just like how fucked up it is that this is happening yeah i mean i don't know too much about so we're talking about usv tau right and this mm -hmm. is franklin tau Mm -hmm. uh, Franklin Tao is, is a professor over at KU, Kansas, uh, Kansas University, mm -hmm. University of Kansas, sorry. He's been charged with one count of wire fraud and three counts of program fraud. And what that means, uh, you know, wire fraud is just a way of saying that I committed fraud, but I used what we call an interstate communications channel, be it the mail. Mail is usually the number one way that you get wire fraud charges. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of that is to make what might be like a local criminal charge into a federal case. Right. I so see. if I commit a crime, you know, usually that's a, the, the jurisdiction of the, of the state. But this is really part of a federal program of sort of hunting down uh, Chinese spies. Right. So mm -hmm. they use wire fraud as a way to make 
this into a federal case. And then three counts of program fraud. I wasn't too familiar with program fraud, but apparently there is a federal statute that makes it a crime to commit any kind of fraud, like a misrepresentation or something like that, uh, in order to secure government funding for research. And I think that he has worked on stuff that is federally funded. Right. Everybody does. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is very technical. And it's not accusing him of being a spy. Mm-hmm. This is not done under an Espionage Act or anything. It's about fraud. Because I don't think that any of the factual allegations would justify a charge of espionage. Like, you know, they don't have like wiretaps of him talking to a Chinese handler, you know, anything like that. I think what he said was that he hit, he failed to disclose something on his resume uh-huh. uh, that he had submitted, I think, to both Kansas for his job. Uh, and also probably that that resume was forwarded to the laboratory, the, the federal laboratory uh, that funded his projects. He failed to disclose that he had worked, that he had mm-hmm. some sort of contract or obligation to work uh, for Fuzhou University in China. And that part of that work was for him to go and uh, try and recruit or, you know, whatever it is, like nominate people for positions over in Fuzhou. So that's what he was charged mm-hmm. with. They didn't mention this economic espionage act of 1996 Mm -hmm. the eea Mm -hmm. i'm not sure how that is related but it seems like they were trying to connect all of this wire fraud or like documentation these documentation issues to this eea but i'm not sure how exactly that's happening yeah i I don't know if the eea was does it say that the eea was used here I think they were saying that in in looking at the EEA, which is a sort of trade secret, it sounds like it's a trade secrets act. It was passed in 96. That this is interesting from the amicus. It says between 96 and 2009, 17% of the defendants under the EEA's provisions, those that EEA charges were brought were of Chinese descent. And that since 2009, after 2009, it's been 52%. And if you count Uh Asian Americans and immigrants overall, it's 62%. So it's, you know, heavily, they're just saying that I think the EEA has been heavily biased towards uh, Asian, Asian Americans and Chinese Americans. Okay. But this is even outside of the EEA, EEA, these investigations. I don't know if EEA was brought against Tao or not. Oh, okay. It's not alleging that he said anything or helped the Chinese in any, you know, the, the Chinese uh, in any way. It's saying that he had lied on his resume and that that amounted to fraud. I see. Yeah, I guess, let me just tell you how fucked up this is, right? This is like one thing that he left out of a CV. I don't know how long ago this was, but like a scientific CV is like dozens of pages long. It's like every single appointment. Well, by the way, I mean, well, you should add, I should add that he, he claims that what they're saying he failed to put on there doesn't actually exist. They're saying that he... He signed an agreement with the university. He's saying he never. Oh, really? So he's not even conceding that he that yeah no he's not even conceding that he left anything off. They're saying that he should have put it on there, and they're saying that there was the existence of this agreement. And Uh, uh, from his perspective, he's like, no, there's nothing. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't mention it because it doesn't exist. (laughs) So where would they find that? Like, who did somebody? I mean, how did they even say that he had this? You know, they they were probably surveilling him. I mean, I think he did stuff for Fuzhou University in terms of helping them. But not specifically like a contract or anything. 
Yeah, they're saying that they, they, you know, all this stuff needed to be disclosed. And of course, like you said, I'm sure that a lot of things don't appear, you know, like on the, on, don't show up. But the problem mm-hmm. is that uh, this, this happens all the time with the, with uh, Chinese researchers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're looking for connections to China and to espionage and they will, you know, any sort of contact with anyone in China. Suddenly the person that you contacted, that person's connections to the Chinese government, et cetera, suddenly become germane. Mm-hmm. If I go to an academic conference and I start talking to someone about scientific issues, because it's a science, it's an international scientific community. Well, if it turns out that I'm Chinese American and the person that I talk to is Chinese from China, then whether that, if that person is somehow connected to the government in any way, then it's sort of like I've been talking to a Chinese spy because I'm Chinese American. Right. And they go for that because it's believable. I think most Americans would believe that a Chinese American would want to do things like that, like help the Chinese government. And we get into this, but like, it all begins with this idea that China is an enemy. Mm-hmm. Because if I, if I went to a conference and I was helping, helping a Swedish scientist out and the Swedish guy had ties to the Swedish government. Right. That happens all the time. Yeah. No one would care. So what? Even if I said, Oh, I, I was helping the Swedish government with one of its programs, you know, like mm-hmm. no one yeah. would care. But because yeah, you would, China is yeah. an enemy or, or it has been declared an enemy, it's become a, it, that's a very major, that's a major problem and you're going to get thrown in the slammer or get deported for it. That's how it is. Mm hmm. I mean, I don't know what else to say other than that's just how it is. And, it's, and you said it, it's been the last 10 years now. It's been since forever. I mean, I think this is part of a much longer context. And I think that's what we got to do these days is we've got to take these cases of their individual cases. And I think it's, it's frustrating because it's like, can I tease out all of the things that all the fucked up things that are going on as one case? No, because there's always plausible deniability in any given case. The government claims that ethnicity has nothing to do with this. I mean, they said that in the Wen Ho Lee prosecution in 1999, where the FBI said, look, it has nothing to do with him being Chinese American. How do you prove that it was or wasn't? I mean, it's just he said, she said. Well, so in that case, an Iris Chang, she wrote about this in her book, The Chinese in America, at the same time that the Wen Ho Lee trial was going on. Or like he was like thrown into prison for many months, right? Like in solitary confinement, even like Mm -hmm. just like tortured or, Mm -hmm. you know, like abused in a bunch of ways. There Mm -hmm. was another case of this German guy. His family was virtually bankrupted. uh, Yeah. Just for the legal costs. Right. But like at the same time that was going on, there was another case where it was a German guy who was suspected of espionage. And he was just, like, he never was imprisoned. He was treated completely differently. And he was actually found out to be a real spy. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, the treatment is completely different. And there is, like, like, it's not just he said, she said. There's, like, clearly, like, different standards for how Asians or especially Chinese people are treated versus white, you know, or European people. Speaking of Iris Chang, I mean, she, the mother of all cases is Qin Shui Sen, mm-hmm. rocket engineer that is one of the founders of Caltech, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, a genius. He was part of the Manhattan Project to develop the atom bomb. He was a Chinese national and he was suspected of being uh, a communist. And in fact, at that time, he said, look, I am a communist. And he was a communist <laughs> in terms of, you know, he would go to communist meetings in America, not Chinese communist meetings, but like you mm-hmm. know, other American communist par- party. He caught me sympathies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they got rid of him. And so in that case, I think most people would be like, well, if he was a communist, yeah, kick him out. He wasn't even a citizen. Okay, fine. 
But it turns out when he went back to China that he, he was basically the, the father of the Chinese ICDM program. It was kind of a dumb move. <laughs> yeah, if it weren't for him, the Chinese space program would have been like 20 years behind. So it's like all of this stuff, it's worse. It's bad for the US, you know? In, in the long run, I think that a lot of Chinese students, postdocs, scientists being scared of coming here or not having ties to the US, it's only going to benefit Chinese research more because the brain drain isn't going to happen. And it's it's all because of this bullshit. Yeah, and it's it's also not even have to be zero sum. I mean, it's just the fact that we're decimating our own scientific community. I think Sherry Chen was was brought up. She was she's a hydrologist in Ohio. Okay, like talk about someone who really doesn't have access to like state secrets. I mean <laughs> right. she's talking about the water system yeah. in Ohio. Yeah. And by the way, like the profile of her when I read it, she's a real dork. I mean, she is a real hydrologist. She does serious mm-hmm. work, is my point. Like, she's mm-hmm. really committed to her work. And her work is really important. She's creating models of how the hydro- hydrological system works in Ohio, meaning like, you know, the rains, the flooding, and all that stuff, so that she can predict flooding mm-hmm. in the Ohio Plain. Why would this be a state secret? What fear is there that yeah, and the charges that were brought against her, which were later totally dropped, but of course it ruined her life and she was fired and all this stuff, bankrupted, you know, et cetera, life ruined, is that she uh, had, I think, sent some data over to someone in China that was also a hydrology uh, researcher. Uh, the data was... It was publicly available. It was publicly available data. She probably just sent her a link to a website. Yeah, sent her a link. And she had one of her colleagues CC'd on it, and the colleague turned her into the FBI. Oh, my God. Yeah. Of course, all the charges were dropped later. But in America, the having charges brought against you is enough to ruin your life. You will be fired. Yeah. You will be you know, bankrupted, you know, whatever. Just bringing charges uh, will ruin your life. Right. It'll get you blackballed. Everything is about reputation. It'll get your like security clearance taken away so that you're no longer able to even access these jobs in the government. Yeah. You know, and I I think we should talk about this. Mm -hmm. What is the benefit to the United States here? Because it's like, okay, you have a scientist who is trying to predict flooding in the Midwest Mm -hmm. and to protect property, protect life. These aren't even government secrets that sh- like government research. Like this is all publicly funded and the results of the research are published in publicly available journals. Yeah, and and the net loss here and I think it's it's too easy to frame this as oh the rights of Chinese Americans also, but it's also the decimation of the US uh, scientific community. I think it's a, you know, the loss of these scientists has a material impact. And, and uh, Qian Shrizen is a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a very dramatic version of that, which is like, okay, we will give a 10 or 15 year head start to the to the Chinese missile program. Wen Ho Li, I believe, was uh, someone who modeled, you know, nuclear weapons and their safety. You know, they, they accused him of stealing state secrets and stuff like that. I mean, all charges, I think, except for one, which is a bullshit charge. We're talking about 60 charges. All of them were dropped. Mm -hmm. I think it was a case where the the federal judge actually apologized to them, which is fairly unprecedented, Mm -hmm. but said that there was just such massive bad faith on the part of the FBI and the prosecutors that he was owed an apology. What, What is the point of getting rid of these 
Chinese American scientists? What is the point? I think that's a question that I'm not asking that rhetorically. I mm -hmm. am interested in why we do it because there is a reason. I've been thinking about this and I feel like there's two things that I think is going on. Like one, the science community or like being an, a scientist in academia in the US, I feel like it's one of the only fields where you can actually have these like mentorship networks, you know, where like you have like a big boss who is Chinese and the entire lab is like mostly Chinese and you can just like be Chinese or be Asian do the work that you want to do and nobody can fuck with you. Some of the people that they had mentioned who, you know, were like being questioned by the FBI or people were suspicious of them. Those are like huge, huge guys at MIT, like world renowned scientists, leaders of the field, like probably going to be shortlisted for a Nobel prize at some point. And they're being questioned by the FBI. And it's just like, why they've, been at MIT for like 30, 40 years or something. The thing that those two guys have in common is their labs are mostly Chinese. Like when I was there, I like knew about this guy's lab and I was like, oh, maybe I'd be interested in them. But like my, my classmates would be like, oh, that's one of those like all Chinese labs, you know, like it's well known who has like all Chinese people in their lab. And um, I think there's some serious animosity there, not on the surface level, but just like the white people don't like it, that they have to put up with it. But they do have to put up with it because these people are technically good, you know? Like I shit on science and academia all the time, but like realistically, this is the one area, one field where you could go and just have a Chinese boss and have Chinese coworkers and uh, still be in elite in your field, in the, like a white collar field. I agree. I think that sounds right. Because one of the things I've noticed is that the scientific community tends not to rally around mm -hmm. these scientists, right? So we have the Asian American civil rights community coming out. I don't know if, you know, the National Academy of Sciences or whatever came out also with an amicus brief to say like, you know, I don't think they did. Uh, maybe no. they did. I don't know. They could have, but... It, it seems to me that a lot of times, like, for example, Sherry Chen, it was Sherry Chen's colleague that turned her in. Yeah. Turned her in, quote, for yeah. nothing. Yeah, you're right. I, I, don't, I don't think, I think Chinese Americans and Asian Americans in general, their white colleagues are probably like, yeah, fuck them. You know, mm -hmm. they get thrown That's in exactly prison. how they are. There's so much animosity, especially for China. Also, the people who are in these positions, they're there to be apolitical and to just put their head down and do the work. Otherwise, they would not be able to cut it because it's it's so hard. It's so grueling uh, to to make it. And like, that's the thing. These head guys, they're basically CEOs of a little company, you know, like every lab is like a little fiefdom, a little kingdom of their own. And so these top guys, they're actually helping their students, their Chinese students get jobs get placed in other positions in academia, like in every single other field that is controlled by white people. But here, you know, you have Asians at the top, Chinese people at the top and the scientific community until now, you know, until all this shit is happening, they had to recognize that, you know, if Tao 
or one of these guys at MIT, if they send a letter of recommendation, they can send that anywhere and it'll be recognized as legit. The white science community, they just have to accept that. And they did for the most part. But now they can be like, oh, well, this guy is suspected of espionage. So uh, fuck all these postdocs who wanted a career in, from his lab. Fuck all of them. I think, do you think the Chinese are, you know, the Chinese scientific community has, I mean, they're, they're aware of this, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, I would think that this makes the U.S. a lot less attractive a place to, to conduct research. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Totally. And that, that's on us. That hurts us. Yeah, it's very bad. It's also bad because it's not just Chinese professors who take students from China or Chinese Americans. A lot of white professors are now going to be scared of accepting postdocs and graduate students from China Mm. because they don't want to be involved. Like the highest profile case in the media recently was this chemist at Harvard And he was actually arrested, you know, they did this like high profile thing of like him being arrested and like let out of his house or his lab or whatever. It was in the New York Times last year, I think. And I I think that was put on display, you know, because he took like funds from some Chinese company or whatever. I don't know what the deal was that he didn't disclose. And it was the same sort of thing. But they chose that guy, that well-established Harvard white guy as a warning to all of the white professors who now are not going to probably accept most Chinese postdocs and students. So it's bad for collaboration. It's bad for science. Yeah. So, but I guess the question is, uh, the way I think about it now is like, so what? I mean, I guess part of me is just like, it's sad for the people who get caught up in this, obviously, that we should fight it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's a real solution to this, except at the real deep levels. Meaning, I don't think that an amicus brief is going to do shit. I don't think... It's not going to do anything. I don't think even an acquittal will do anything. No. You know, I mean, when Holy was acquitted, uh, Chen Shrisen was like ultimately uh, totally, you know, redeemed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Sherry Chen, the charges were dropped. I mean, people, they, they don't really... These, these things don't really go anywhere. Right. But it keeps happening anyway, right? And mm-hmm. so we'll come out and we'll say, oh, you know, these charges are bullshit and, you know, blah, 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 and discrimination. And then they come out and the, even the federal courts agree. And it just keeps happening. Yeah. So I think we need to look at the bigger picture, just like the broad pattern here. And I think it's about like, like I I mentioned before, just like cutting off the access to elite and white collar status for these Chinese people, Chinese Americans too. But also, I think that it's actually part of a broad pattern of ethnic cleansing, and I say this because, you know, in the past 10 years, and you brought this up, Teen, like, what is happening here kind of reminds me of what is happening to, like, uh, the sex work industry, you know, the Asian American sex work industry, where they're saying, like, all these women are here being traffic, you know, they're like sex trafficking victims, we need to save them from these horrible conditions in these massage parlors. And uh, it turns out that all those women, they just get put in prison and deported. And that's been happening in the same time period. Like, 
I wrote something about this in um, the uh, Yang Song article was that since 2012, there's been more Asian sex work and sex work adjacent police raids. It increased like 27,000% or something like that. 2,000 something percent increase in those raids. In the last few years, we've seen kind of like high profile cases, right, of Robert Kraft or of just like these madams getting busted along with the white guys who are using these, you know, sex parlors, right? But like nothing happens to those guys. It's just all these women get heavily fined, they get long prison sentences, and then they get deported. ICE is using these like sex crime, sex trafficking courts to like spy on immigrants and to to arrest and deport them. Like that's why Yang Song died was because the police were trying to have her snitch on all of her colleagues and she refused. And then they started bullying her. Yeah, that that that's interesting. I mean, so so the story is that Orchid Day Spa bust down in, I think it was Jupiter, which is in South Florida. It's interesting. I remember, I, I don't know if she was directly connected, but I remember at a time there was a Chinese woman who was spotted in a photo at Lago, Mar de Lago. Yeah. With, with Trump. And then they were like, they looked up her background and she was like an owner of these spas. She might have been the owner of that spa. Mm-hmm. That they were using that as an example of like Chinese influence on American politics, right? So there was, there, there was already these hints that these, uh, Chinese prostitutes, these dragon women <laughs> were a spy. Like it was a, a, she was like the complete total integration of all of the, you know, Fu Manchu type stereotypes, right? Like mm-hmm. not only is she, you know, a prostitute, but she's also a spy, the horse spy, right? And <laughs> uh, <laughs> Chinese a horse spy. Spore. Yeah. <laughs> Spores. Uh, and. <laughs> You know, the funny thing was, because I, I spend quite a bit of time in South Florida because I, I got some friends that live uh, in that area uh, south of Jupiter. I'll tell you one thing about South Florida is when I was watching all this stuff come out about human trafficking and then the concern about about that. And, and I'm like, okay, clearly anyone who believes this has never been to South Florida because prostitution in South Florida is de facto legal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like on the books, it's a, it's illegal, but the, it is so out in the open. If you go, like literally, they have billboards for these giant, they're like a steakhouse slash brothel is basically what these places are. <laughs> and like the second you go in, as I, you know, obviously I've been to these places, I'll go there with my friends or whatever, you have dinner there. And women who are, I don't know, a lot of times not American, you know, like from Eastern Europe or whatever. We'll just be like, yeah, if you want to have sex with me in the champagne room, it's going to cost this much money. It's like not even, it's just like part of the menu. It's like, this is, this is everywhere in South Florida. Prostitution is totally a, a legit industry in South Florida. Everyone knows it. The police know it. The police probably frequent these places and they probably moonlight their security, et cetera. There may be investors in it for all I know. I don't know. But the idea that South Florida has a particular problem with sex work is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That, that's part of their economy. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. I think that uh, I don't know how we got to this topic in particular, but it, it is it is true that I think, you know, it, it is more definitely about the uh, the Chinese coming and trying to threaten, you know, an existing industry. It is nothing. But but they'll point out to be like, oh, but the Chinese are particularly uh, morally depraved. And I think there's a bit of anti-Semitism type racism in that where they'll accuse, say, Jews of being remorseless bankers 
uh, you know, like a like a what's his name, the the Ponzi scheme guy. Oh, Madoff. Um, yeah, like Madoff, right? Like the evil Jew. Uh, meanwhile, you know, <laughs> that industry is yeah. completely dominated by by non Jews, right? And but they'll use right. him as an example of someone. Yes. So I guess what I'm saying is it seems like um, they're using these like trafficking humanitarian concerns or espionage issues of national security to actually eliminate economic competition. Because for every um, (laughs) madame, you know, like that Asian madame or Chinese madame that was photographed with Trump, there's probably like 10 or 100 white madames whose photos you know they exist but they're not broadcast on NBC nationwide there's tons of eastern european sex workers in korea a lot of those are the people who are actually being trafficked so here it's probably the same thing like it doesn't really matter like if those madams are actually evil dragon ladies they're not more evil than the white women who are doing the same shit the story is totally hypocritical. And I think that people who want to understand the story, if they care about things like the truth, mm-hmm. you know, you got to understand, like, you know, when, when you listen to the, you know, Jupiter Sheriff's Department talking about this, uh, moral plague of, you know, rub and tug Asian massage parlors, I'm like, have you been to South Florida? Yeah. <laughs> like, have you seen Rachel's? Do you know what that place is? Like, you know, like, it's a lot of like people who don't really know much about America. Right. Yeah. Who haven't really, you know, they don't, they don't really know how things really work and they get taken in by these, you know, bullshit statements. It's just people who don't really know how America works. Yeah. And I mean, that moral plague specifically, that actually has roots in the 19th century. Cause, you know, like during in the gold rush towns, like there were prostitutes all over the place, like from every nationality, every ethnicity. But when it was convenient, the media used the Chinese prostitutes to be like, oh, look, like these guys are a moral, like a specific moral racial pollution and they need to be gotten rid of, right? And they used that to justify the Page Act, which eliminated all Chinese women from immigrating to the US. Mm, And then eventually they used that for Chinese exclusion and Asian exclusion, which is why I'm saying that I see signs of this happening again in the sex work industry and also in academia. Like I see this as the same thing is that like these, like the white academy doesn't like that there's these Chinese labs working to promote their Chinese postdocs into positions of power. It's just, it's ethnic cleansing. This is how ethnic cleansing begins. Wasn't it in Nazi Germany that like one of the first steps was that they eliminated all the Jewish professors from the universities, like in the early 30s? Oh, yeah. I mean, the patterns are so obvious and disturbing. It's just a mm-hmm. question of whether we're, we're willing to uh, to confront that. Right. And I don't think we are because I think that here's the thing. Uh, you know what they say is like an insane person who knows they're insane is in a way not insane. <laughs> <laughs> like you're not if you know you're insane that means you're not really insane i mean there's some part of you that understand rec- is able to recognize that yeah but i think see the problem with america is that we're actually insane at an aggregate national level we're insane because i don't think that we are able to recognize what's happening to us you know and i find that for for me as a chinese american that that is an exercise in futility to see it to to be like, oh, open up your eyes to what's going on. It's not going, it's not going to because the largest society is insane. And I think that the society is flirting with something very dangerous. 
fascism. Fascism, right? And you can see the signs everywhere. I mean, just like the the amount of like, you, you know, it's like when someone, I think we were talking about this in the chat. It's like, you know, when, when someone is struggling with something, like some identity thing or their sexuality or whatever, and there's just all these outward signs that everyone else can see, but that person can't see themselves. That's like America right now with Nazis. Like we mm-hmm. are talking way too much about Nazis to not clearly be Nazi curious. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you yeah. know, we're, we're flirting with that idea, you know? And like, we're, we're literally using Nazis these days as a benchmark. We're like, oh yeah, but the mm-hmm. Nazis were like this. We're not like that. I'm like, yeah. you realize you're <laughs> well, using the Nazis as a measuring stick. Right. Like, that's what yeah. we're at, right? Like, I mean, we are both heading towards it, but kind of unable to recognize what's going on. Yeah. Another aspect of it is that whatever we're doing, we just put it on China instead of dealing with it ourselves. China in the American imagination is just like a guilt dumpster. (laughs) When you say we were Nazi curious, like, I think once I heard people saying that China is like the Nazis, that was when I was like, okay, we're like mostly fascist now. We are the Nazis. Oh, that's absolutely right. And I think the way it works is when you engage in yellow peril, yellow peril McCarthyism, the w- the way it works, I think, is that by externalizing all of our own worst proclivities onto the foreign other, mm-hmm. that the foreign other becomes the benchmark by which we measure ourselves. The use of China and Nazi together, I think, is really telling because what we're saying is, look, look, the Nazis are gone. They're done. So, we can't really talk about the Nazis anymore. They don't exist. But the new Nazis are the Chinese. And that mm-hmm. that's a way of saying like, like don't worry about China and the, the reality of it. Meaning, we don't actually care about the reality of China. China is now just a stand-in for Nazis. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. It's literally a stand-in for all the bad shit that the U.S. is doing. Right. It's a stand-in. Right. It's a way to externalize. Yeah. No, it's like, yeah. it's really creepy now because I remember a few months ago when they were starting to say like China is sterilizing Uyghur women. And then what do you know, a few months after like the whistleblower for ICE is like, oh, they're performing non-consensual hysterectomies. It was just like, it just seemed like whatever we were doing, mm-hmm. they would put it into the media as that is what China is doing. It allows the liberals to sort of write a pass. Mm-hmm. Because the liberals will say, look, as bad as that is, right. at least we can write about it. Whereas in China, you can't even say anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like a preemptive whataboutism, right? Because yes. now yeah. when you say, look what ICE is doing, everybody will be like, well, well, China was doing that a few months ago. Like, remember these right. reports. Right. It's really creepy. It it's is. really creepy how consistently I'm seeing this. Yeah. Uh, I think the same thing's going on with... Xinjiang in the, in, a, in the Uyghurs in a large, in a much larger frame is like the U.S. is suddenly concerned about Muslim rights. Mm-hmm. The U.S. is concerned about the, the, the rights of Muslims around the world. <laughs> America? Are you kidding me? <laughs> like we don't like it's, it's, it's funny how liberals in this country, because I, you know, the right winger is like, they're just kind of open about it. Yeah. You know, in some in a way they don't piss me off as much because they're just like, Yeah. We're fascists, you know, like, but it's the liberals who sort of write a pass to it. And the fact that liberals don't see the contradiction and don't find a problem with it, mm-hmm. because they're like, yeah, maybe the US is bad, but does, 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 does that excuse China? 
That's the mm-hmm. way we think about it. Does that excuse China? And I think it's really weird that we say things like that because I don't know why the liberals are so concerned about the moral legitimacy of China when clearly the issue is America. Meaning like the issue of our day, the thing that really is of major like national urgency yeah, is our own legitimacy. It has nothing to do with the legitimacy of China. Or Putin or anything. I mean, it's uh, the, the legitimacy of Putin or the legitimacy of Xi is not even in question. But the legitimacy of the U.S. government right now is in question in a big way. I mean, just turn on the news. If they're not talking about Russia and they're not talking about China, then they can become a little bit more serious about it. And there's all this reporting now about how, like, we may not have a proper election in November. Mm-hmm. We, we have a president who's already saying that he's not going to accept the outcome of it. And the world has caught on. There was a, there was an article in the New York Times yesterday about how the world, quote, feels sorry for America. And around the world, people are like, this is shocking to watch the U.S. so quickly fall from its position of legitimacy. Uh, people really mm-hmm. see the U.S. as basically in terminal dec- or in some sort of like runaway decline. So that's mm-hmm. the issue is the U.S. Yeah. Not, not China, not Russia or whatever. It just gives the liberals something to talk about other than that. Right. It, it keeps them from yes. fighting the fall to fascism. Because, like, the ethnic cleansing, that is fascism. You know, that's one of the hallmarks of fascism. We talk about it as uh, demographic anxiety. I think that's another part of it is like the white elites saw that, like, 2010 or 12 report that white people are going to be a minority in the US by like 2042. And this is their reaction. They're flipping their shit. And um, they're driving this move toward fascism and ethnic cleansing, mostly because of that. Yeah, it's too late. It's funny because it's like, it's impossible to change that in the sense that the demographic change, the 2042 thing, it's coming and there's nothing you can do about it. Because a lot of it's already built in, mm-hmm. meaning like if we were to even stop immigration at this point, it would still happen. You know, right now, I think the U.S. is what, 75% white? How do we get from 75% to a minority, you know, within the next 20 years? How does that happen? Well, it's mm-hmm. not through immigration. It's because white, the white population is so heavily skewed towards uh, an older population. Mm-hmm. So, it's, it's a white die-off that's going to happen. Yeah. It's already built in. There's nothing you can do about it. Well, that's why they had that article uh, in Vox <laughs> that was like, we need to have six babies each or whatever. Yeah. White, white women need to have six babies is, is basically, so I mean, they didn't say that. Creepy. Yeah, it's totally yeah creepy. that's exactly what they were saying. That, that's what they were saying without saying it. Basically, corralling women of the, you know, superior race and using them to breed yeah. like animals on a farm. That's another tenant of fascism right there. It's in the media, you know, it's just mainstream ideas now. Oh, the, the Nazis talked about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Himmler. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly what they were trying to do. Yeah. And like something like that is on Vox now, which is a freaking liberal, a liberal platform. You know, it's not the nation. It's not Breitbart. This is Himmler. This is Himmler. Uh, when the mass of humanity of one to one and a half billion lines up against us, the Germanic people numbering, I hope, 250 to 300 million and the other European peoples making a total of six to 700 million must stand the test in its vital struggle against Asia. 
this is the Nazis talking. <laughs> I mean, and this is this is this is what Matty Glacius was talking about in that Vox article, mm-hmm. basically saying like, if we don't get ourselves to a billion people, how are we going to stand up to China? Oh, guess who you sound like now, sir? Heinrich Himmler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is October nineteen forty three. Yeah, you know. It, yeah, it boggles my mind how people don't see this, but especially how Chinese Americans and Asian Americans don't see this. Like you were saying in the last pod we did, like we are going to be the first victims. And the Asian liberals, they're, they're not, we're not doing shit about it. We're just parroting the same yellow payroll rhetoric and uh, flagellating, self-flagellating the U.S. versus Franklin Tao. This is ethnic cleansing against us. Like this is ethnic cleansing against white collar and elite Asians. Like this is you being ethnically cleansed right now, and you don't know about it, or you don't give a shit about it. Like what the fuck? Yeah. Though so, I mean, look, I mean. The entire, like, I mean, look at that amicus brief and how many organizations came in. So I, I think Chinese Americans have a, have a, have a long history of standing up and, and being quite litigious and, um, and resistant in our own way. I mean, I don't think that our resistance is the same as, say, black resistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but we have a form of resistance in our own right. And I do think that it's, I think we have to understand the way we resist, mm-hmm. uh, better. Than just to say necessarily that we don't resist or that our resistance is not as strong as a black resistance or something like that. We have our own form of it. I mean, we talked about this in that WeChat um, mm-hmm. pod where yeah. we have our own way of going about it. And I've been rethinking my position on this a little bit regarding Asian American liberals is as detestable as I can find Asian liberals sometimes. In a way, the Asian liberal does have, you know, a certain kind of influence or power because there still is because we're so assimilated there is still something weird about trying to you know round up chinese american scientists that just strikes Mm -hmm. i think strikes a lot a good number of people as bizarre you know what i mean like i don't think it's going to be as easy to get the entire country like I think it's a it's a small number of people who have bought into this idea that we, that yellow peril is going to unite the country, which Matty Glacius said. Matty Glacius is a is a I think a great example of you know a white liberal. I believe he's white. He's a white guy who believes now that they found this. You know they've discovered something, which is just basic fascist thinking. He said, "I'm sort of coming <laughs> around to the view that anti-China politics could be the unifying national project we need." Mm-hmm. And if you read what. Bannon said, he said, the gangsters in Beijing will see the American people coming together against them. He's Bannon. Like they're, they're, they're just coming on to the same idea. And it's the same idea that undergirds anti-Semitism, you know, and, and tr- it's this idea of the invisible enemy, which is Trump, what Trump calls the coronavirus, which he says is, uh, something that China gave to us, the invisible enemy. Or Pompeo says that China is targeting PTA meetings. <laughs> The, the, you know, this idea that we could get Americans united in this fear of Asians. But see, I, I think the existence of the Boba liberal kind of makes that kind of difficult because it's like, how can you really be that fearful of Kevin Nguyen? You know what I'm saying? Or Kevin Chang? Like, <laughs> how can you be that fearful of these people? They're, they're harmless. 
I've come around to understanding that all of that assimilationist legitimacy that we've purchased ourselves through decades and decades of sucking up to white people, like, I hate to say it, but there is a sort of payoff here. I would, I would say like America, you know, white power in America, white institutional power, white hegemony, white, whatever you want to call it. I think it has made a strategic blunder as of late. I think it's re- still living in the past. America itself is still living in the past. And we think that passes prologue. We think like what happened, you know, in the seventies or eighties is going to happen again now. We think that China is just the next in line to suffer uh, the consequences of daring to stand up to America, that this is Cold War and we'll have the Cold War result again. We're living in the past. The strategic blunder that white America has made is it's made too many enemies all at the same time. And if you're making an enemy out of Asian Americans, you don't have any friends left. <laughs> you you don't like you don't like if you're pissing off like Chinese Americans with master's degrees and PhDs and mm-hmm. they're calling you white supremacists you don't have any friends left well my point is that there aren't enough people doing that yet what uh, what do you mean there aren't enough asian americans calling this shit out i think we're getting there i mean yeah. i really do but i will think it, will it be too late for what I don't know, uh, <laughs> concentration camps, like, uh, like a lot, like, oh. there was a mm-hmm. sizable Jewish population who was very assimilated in Europe as well. You know, that didn't stop anything then. Well, I, see, I don't see, I don't think that we should analogize necessarily too much to what happened in Germany. I think, <laughs> it, well, because for a couple of reasons, because one, you know, the situation is just very different. I mean, America is not Weimar Germany. We're demographically different technologically different, cultures different. I think there's some certain parallels in terms of the strategy, the thinking, you know, uh, but the results are going to be very different. Mm-hmm. So one, I don't think that's going to happen. Two is there's just too much going on in America for this to be the overriding issue. I think still this is just like one aspect of a much larger problem that's going on and that is challenging existing paradigms and institutions in America. It is not the world against the Chinese Americans. It is not America versus the Chinese Americans. It is Chinese Americans being part of some splinter program within the United States government to try and, you know, engage in some unifying project that perhaps we could get everyone to hate the Chinese. But I I don't see that as being particularly successful. And I don't see that as particularly interesting to Americans because I think we're having much larger social problems that this is like throwing this is like throwing pennies at a tank compared to what's going on. What what do people really care about? Yeah, but it's it's entirely possible for the right wing controlled media to make this the overarching problem. They're and trying. Have everybody, yeah, they're trying. And and, Asia, and Chinese Americans will be thrown in prison or thrown out of the country, fired from jobs. Or, you know, arrested, killed, or whatever. That's true. But my point is that I don't think that that is going to be the final solution to America's problem. Oh, totally not. It will result in a lot of pain and injustice for Chinese Americans, but it's not going to be the organizing principle of some like national campaign against the Chinese. It'll be some like splinter program to, to get rid of us or to kill us or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, which will have some successes and will which have some failures. I mean, if you look at 
the track record of these uh, prosecutions are not particularly good. In a way, if it's it's kind of a trap for America. If they go too far in this, the idea of pogroming Chinese Americans is so ridiculous on its face. In a way, it's so ridiculous that you know it would be such a sign of American decline for that to happen. That in a way, I almost kind of want to be like, yeah, just try it then. <laughs> yeah. I, honestly, I'm just like, let's just try it and see what happens. Like a part part of me now is kind of like, just try it and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, fight it in terms of like trying to get personal just individual justice for people who are wrongly accused. Absolutely. But I don't know if I'm that interested in course correcting or fighting for course correction versus sitting back and just watching all this shit go down where I'm like, at the end of the day, this is much more dangerous for America than it is for anyone else. I don't think they actually have to have a reckoning because I think that they will do this stuff. They have their like 20 years of fascism. I mean, not even that, you know, just like five years of fascist purge. And then they're going to just replace the Boba liberals with, you know, like Nigerian liberals. It's not so easy. I mean, you, we have to talk about the specifics of how that's done in American society. And to get that done, I mean, we have to basically destroy the Constitution. To actually get that done. You saw it. We can barely ban WeChat without a court coming in saying you can't do it. Okay. We have to have some faith here that like American legal institutions and things like that actually work. And if they don't, see, like if we get to what you're fearful of, at that point, you're in a position where your legal institutions have failed. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about a truly failed state at that point. I mean, I mean, we're talking about a uh, election, <laughs> like like a failed election. You know, like isn't that already a sign of what's to come? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think a couple months ago was the first time that the net immigration flows between China and the U.S. tilted the other way. More people went to China than the other way. And that was probably likely the return of a lot of Chinese nationals back to China. So more Chinese had gone back to China than were coming over here. And they've already got the message. You're not welcome. We don't want you here. Uh, and at this point, they're kind of like, why would I come? You know? <laughs> okay, fine. I won't come. It's not like before where somehow coming to America was the only and best option. It, like, we're li- like, this is what I'm saying. It's like America's living in the past. I think we're we're sitting around flexing like we're still the center of the universe. The rest of the world's kind of like, what the fuck is going on with you? I guess for me, just thinking about all this stuff is like, what do I do now? I think it would be great if like there were more boba liberals pushing back on this stuff. You're having a front row seat to probably one of the most significant events in like you know recent world history is watching the decline of the United States. Yeah, yeah. And I think being Chinese American, you're kind of in the very much in the middle of that. Chinese Americans are seeing this play out in a way that I think we gives us. And I, you know, this guy, Noah Smith, he's a, you know, he's like a typical white liberal younger guy, like probably in his thirties or something like that, who writes progressive liberal op-eds for Bloomberg. And he's like, has the most typical sort of like white view of China from a liberal perspective of like, you know, everything's about putting China on trial and stuff. Mm -hmm. But yet somehow I think he's somehow interested in this Chinese debate. So he's actually going to debate Carl Zahn. Oh yeah. I heard about that. So, which I'm I'm, I'm really happy he's doing it. I think that's a great idea, but I think that he exemplifies the problem to me is that in America, we still think that 
the white liberal is sort of like somehow a transcendent identity that the job of the white liberal is to sort of pass judgment on everything. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And like a, a guy like Noah Smith being like a, a, a progressive liberal, you know, will gladly concede that America has its problems too and whatever. And will thus pass judgment on the Trump administration and parts of America that they don't like the same way they'll pass judgment on the rest of the world. But it's kind of like, you know, I just don't think that that white liberal universalism exists anymore for a simple reason is we don't have the power anymore. You know, the world doesn't agree that the white liberal is the transcendent universal identity. At, at some point in the world history, it, there was some sort of agreement about that, that somehow America represented the absolute pinnacle of human development, that development was driven by white elites, and that the what rest of the world should emulate it as, as close as possible. It's only been that way since probably the 50s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's, it's very, very recent history. It's a, it's a blip. It's a blip. And it is also, you know, totally contingent on American power and legitimacy. Yeah. It's not just American power in the sense of we have the nukes, but it's also American legitimacy in the sense that people believe in America. And I don't think people believe in America anymore. And why should they? You know, and, and the more we do this, Stuff like, you know, prosecuting our Chinese American scientists. And that I think is driving a rot in American moral legitimacy in places that, you know, I think that our scientific legitimacy, our academic legitimacy was a huge pillar of the overall structure. It doesn't get the attention that it deserves because a lot of our legitimacy comes from our advancements, you know, like an R&D. And like, if we don't have that, if we don't have the educational and research edge, like we really don't have, have anything. Yeah. And, and somehow we're, we're, it's not even the, re- it's not like we're doing our best, but you know, the rest of the world's catching up. It's like we're actively <laughs> no. destroying our own yeah. system. We're eating it and destroying it ourselves because it's not our priority anymore. I think it's because in a way we've gone insane. I, I think like we've got to just admit that, you know, the U.S. is not doing things in its own interest anymore. And the more we use frames of analysis, we're like, Oh, well, the U.S. is doing this because. And then some theory as to how this advances American interests. Mm. That only works if America's sane. Yeah. I think a lot of the explanations for why we're doing things is a kind of insanity. Like, for example, like why, why is there a spate of pogroms against Chinese American researchers? Why? Why are we doing it? What does it advance? Well, the answer, I think, is kind of insane. Part of it, I think, a big part of it is that when the United States at the highest levels declares that we are in some sort of massive confrontation with China, that becomes a marquee issue. And what happens is that if you have any political ambition in America, having a connection to that confrontation is a big you know, feather in your cap. I remember when I was at the government, we had our commissioner, newly appointed commissioner, gave a speech to all of us staffers. And she said, I think she almost had someone in the, in the crowd like sort of plant the question because her name had showed up on a kill list after some raid in Afghanistan and they had found a, a terrorist kill list supposedly and her name was on it. And she said that with a lot of pride. <laughs> this was part of the DC mentality to say like, it is a really great thing for your career to end up on the kill list of, you know, of an Al Qaeda cell 
uh, somewhere in Afghanistan in a cave somewhere. Because that means I'm important enough to be killed. Right. Yeah. So that's the mentality in DC is like, they're co- you're constantly trying to be part of something big because that right. will present bigger things for you later. And so, you know, the desire to go after anyone Chinese with a Chinese name. And I know that was part of the amicus was that it wasn't just that they were going after uh, Chinese. They were going after people with Chinese sounding names, meaning like not Chris Peng, but like, mm-hmm. you know, someone with like a full Chinese name. So why? Because it kind of lends a sort of foreign espionage mystique to the proceedings. Mm-hmm. And that is a feather in your cap later to be like, oh, look, I'm not just some like, you know, local yokel prosecutor. Think of me as like, I'm involved in like the, you know, the US intelligence national security community. I'm part of that vanguard, you know. It's very insane. It's an insane set of internal political considerations that that go into this. You know, the overzealous prosecutor. What I'm saying is like these cases are not necessarily brought in order to advance some deep American interest. They may be brought because the prosecutor just wants to be known. Right. It says in the amicus, they issued like a quota for cases of like 125 cases a year. And even the U.S. attorney recognized that they probably wouldn't actually bring in 125 cases a year. But all these prosecutors are just looking for creative ways to bring <laughs> bring cases in to pad their numbers, essentially. Yeah, because, you know, there's two routes to American political power. One is uh, going the elected route becoming a governor, becoming a senator. The other is going through the prosecute, being a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. That's the other What route. does that get you? Well, like a Chris, Chris, Chris Christie or like a Kamala Harris. Oh, I Harris, see, I see. Yeah. Right? So, they, you can, if you can't win office, if you can't, you know, get yourself to the House of Representatives or whatever, the general wisdom in America is that, okay, well, then become a prosecutor. Right? So, you have a lot of like political ambition in, you know, U.S. attorney's offices. And Chris Christie was a U.S. attorney in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And they choose their cases based on, you know, the ability for them to present that as, you know, I'm a lover of America or I'm a defender of America. And, you know, people who bring cases against Chinese, they're probably thinking at some level, like later down the road, I can use this as an example of how I got tough on China, you know, things like that. And so these people, do you think, you know, I don't think they're sitting back and thinking, you know, what are, what is the best interest of, you know, the American scientific community? No, they don't give a fuck. They have no idea what goes on. They're not thinking that. They don't give a shit about that. They don't even know what that means. They have no idea what goes on in, in science. Right. So what I'm saying is that we're, it, this is an example of, I think, how America shoots itself in the foot mm-hmm. is our insane political culture of narcissists competing you know, for notoriety. And none of them are actually interested in, you know, the project of America as, you know, as a unified country with, you know, values and, you know, things like that. Right. No, it's just, I just want, I'm just jockeying for position. I don't give a fuck about America. I just want a high position in it. And that's how we get these outbreaks of hysteria. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a bubble of like, you know, come get the Chinese prosecutions while they're still hot. That's the, you know, flavor of the month. Is that how McCarthyism happened also in the 50s? I don't know. I mean, I feel like McCarthyism was, it seemed to be, yeah, maybe. Maybe it was. Yeah, maybe it was. It was a, it was a way of like rewarding people, 
you know, to whistleblow and, and, and suddenly you're a hero, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. No, I think, I think in a way, like that stuff was almost even more thought out back then. There was a, there was a more, I feel like in the Cold War era, there was a more thought out understanding of the struggle between us and the Soviet Union and, and in particular, the sort of free market ideology, capitalist ideology versus communism. Mm-hmm. And that that was in some way like a more legitimate struggle than what we see now. Now what we're seeing, like, I don't know if we really have a grand thesis of like what the stakes are, uh, you know, what vision of the future we have versus what the vision of like, say, China has. We don't, it's not really that kind of struggle. I mean, it seems like they're trying to harken back to the mystique of like World War Two era, yes. you know, because yes. like the, l- the left too, with the Green New Deal and all these FDR references, like yes. they're yeah. also saying make America great again, but just not in those terms. Yeah, absolutely. America's gone full hipster is my, is my, <laughs> is how I think of it. Because like, I remember yeah. like, you know, if you look at a hipster, like go to Brooklyn or Portland or any of these places, I'm sure Boston has hipsters. I mean, what are they? They're guys who dress like their grandpas. Yeah, exactly, right? They, <laughs> like, like, it's not even really their grandpas. By it's, hand. Yeah, it's, it's their it's, imagined grandpa. Yeah, you know, it's like, their projection. Yeah. The, what like the ideal grandpa would be. Yeah, you know, and, and it's because I think like, you know, we just don't have like a generative creative culture anymore. We're just eating ourselves down. Like we can't, I don't know, something's happened where we just don't have a communal vision of a creative new future. Like we're just sort of like, all we can do is sort of like re-digest, re-metabolize our own history, things that have already happened. And so we can't frame things except through things that have already happened. And so this confrontation with China is Cold War II. Like that's it. It's a, like to understand. It's the sequel. It's a sequel. We're it's trying a, to make a sequel, yeah. yeah. And it's the same thing. It's the sequel is exactly mm-hmm. the same thing, but with a new, you know, enemy. It's almost like it's 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 almost like a retread of a video game. It's like a reboot. Right. It's, it's more yeah. it's more of a reboot. Final Fantasy you know? Seven remake. Yeah, yeah, with better graphics, you know, but fundamentally yeah. the same game. Yeah. You know, I think this actually is related to the decline of education in science in the US, you know, just like the prestige of that. Because back in the Cold War era, it was it was about fighting the commies, but you know, it was also the space race. Like we were trying like we wanted to be the most technolo- technologically advanced, you know, like this was a boon to our nation. Like we saw research, we saw scientists as like these these people that we wanted to aspire to and to support. And now, like nobody gives a shit. Oh, it's ridiculous. Because I remember, like when Trump came out and said that he was going to use the defense. What was it? The Wartime Powers Act or some 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 fucking law that allows him to commandeer private industry for purposes of like emer- national emergencies. Well, the point of this used to be like, well, we're going to commandeer industry so we can build, you know, weapons and heavy weapons and stuff to fight a war. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about like major shit. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Like, like yeah. Bombers and tanks and, you know, missiles. He came out. He was like, we are going back to wartime. We're going to see a mobilization unlike anything we've seen since World War II. And what did it amount to? I think they had Bush beer. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Anheuser Busch. Yeah, it's like a like a liquor company 
they decided that they were going to turn one of their production lines away from making beer and making hand sanitizer. Like that, that, that like that's what we're talking about now. It's a joke. I mean, they're bringing out this imagery of we're the World War II badasses again. But what are you doing? You're making hand sanitizer. It's a farce. It's, it's a repeat of history, but as a farce. Uh, you know what they say, like, you know, history repeats itself, but second time is a farce. I think that's what we're seeing in a bit mm-hmm. is this belief that what happened in the past is bound to happen again. It's this belief that time is sort of circular and that we think that all the conditions that led up to World War II are going to happen again and we will emerge just like we did in World War II, which is why we keep talking about Nazis. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's another part of what Bannon's whole thing is, is like, if we can identify another Nazis to defeat, then we can come out again as if it was the you know, late 40s, 1950s again. Mm-hmm. All we have to do is defeat China and then we're going to come back out as the uh, the global alpha Chad, uh, you know, hegemon. Not going to happen. Yeah, you know, this is this kind of reminds me of the indigenous um, people's history of the United States discussion that we had. How in the '60s, people felt like there was there was some feeling of stagnation, and this notion of like the frontier thesis came up of like America needs like for its national identity a frontier to conquer to ever expand into. The idea was that, like, ever since the Indian Wars ended in the 1890s, like, American colonialism uh, was over, we kind of lost our sense of self at that point. And so, Mm. JFK came and was like, okay, you know, like, communism, the benighted second world is the new frontier, and we are going to conquer it. We're going to colonize it with democracy and freedom. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the ideals of the Cold War era. It's a messianic kind of idea almost. Exactly. Yeah. It's uh it's it's the it's the light side of manifest destiny, I guess. Um but you know, like after the Cold War ended, we went into another period of like loss of national drive because we don't have a frontier anymore. And so I think that has a lot to do with why we need to find the Nazis again, right? This because we can't do <laughs> we can't do indigenous colonization. Like that's a no no now. But we can fight the Nazis again. And so, like it, it seems like fi- what with what you're saying, finding a new Nazi to fight that's the same as frontier thesis a third time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, I think America is just like grappling with like what do we do? What do we? Who are we if we're not fighting an enemy, if we're not pioneering new lands? And there's no good answer now because the world just doesn't exist anymore the way that it used to. You know, like we can't, we physically, physically can't do the same shit anymore. Mm -hmm. Maybe neoliberalism and neocolonialism in Africa. But, you know, it it would be better if they invested more into, like, a new space race, Mm -hmm. right? Of just, like, of, like, colonizing another planet, like a desolate planet, because of climate change or something. Like, just Mm -hmm. just recognize that climate change is a thing and actually try to go to Mars. Like, that would be a better strategy than what we're doing now. Yeah, but I think we know that and we keep, like... You know, it was it was funny because I remember like 
have you noticed how much nostalgia stuff there is? Like how much, yeah. like how, how we keep making movies about going to the moon. There's one now about challenger, you know, all this, like we keep talking about and like world war two and all this stuff. And like, was it July 4th? I remember it was in DC visiting my family and they had this amazing like digital projection of Saturn five, the Saturn five, mm-hmm. the Apollo thir- was it Apollo 11, 11 whatever. The yeah. one that went to the, yeah. Yeah. That's that went somewhere. Yeah, so they had this restored footage of the of the Saturn rocket, and they projected it onto the National Monument as if it looked. Now it was it's roughly the size, I guess, of the actual rocket. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, so it really looked like the the original uh, Apollo Eleven was sitting in the National Mall, and they did this amazing projection where they actually like launched it. It looked like the thing. It's hard to describe, but they animated it so like looked like the thing actually took off. And people were amazed by this. They were like, whoa, you know, like, I can't believe we're (laughs) able to do this. And I'm like, we are celebrating our ability to recreate something that we did 50, 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. So we're recreating a technological achievement that's now five decades old. And our amazement is at at our ability to pretend it's happening again. (laughs) Right. It's kind of like what's going on. And I think that. You know, I think that's the problem with America is like, you're right. There's, there, we don't have any great national projects anymore. And we've known this for a long time. That's the thing. Like, I'm old enough to remember that these are the same problems that were sort of foreseen, like way back in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a big fan of, you know, I'm not a big fan of like this, the a fight club per se, but like I am interested in stuff like fight club just because of how much it connected with people, mm-hmm. like how widespread it was. And there was this very famous quote. That said, and, and this was, this was him talking sort of about like youngish Americans at that time, 1999, I guess is when the movie was up. This is from the book. Uh, we're the middle children of history, man. No purpose or no place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'll all be millionaires, movie gods, and rock stars, but we won't. And we're slowly learning that fact and we're very, very pissed off. You know, I think we were a little bit more aware of what was going on, of what was coming, maybe like mm-hmm. in the 90s or 2000s. And then it came and then now we're sort of like in the midst of the madness. And when you're in the midst of the madness, you can no longer recognize it. Well, I remember in the 90s, there were a, the media was a lot better. It seemed like to be actually critical of society and to try to look for solutions, you know, or to try to ask for solutions from elected officials. Because, like, that was when Office Space came out. Was Fight Club was, like, around that time. Too, 99, like, it was all 99. Yeah, 99. Yeah, the Matrix came out, Office yeah. Space and Fight Club, all 99, yeah. All 99. Like, mm-hmm. we were actually engaged civically and i think the turning point was actually 9-11 every all of that stops and it was just like oh like we have some external enemy like we can't we can't fix all of these problems and fight terrorism at the same time like it it just completely shifted to patriotism and like stuff like that i think 9-11 kind of solved that problem for a lot like you know, when, when that quote is like, we have no great war. Well, when 9-11 came, we kind of did, right? And then I knew a lot of people who like enlisted after that. And they, that was their, their belief that suddenly we have, we found our purpose to, to a degree. That was such a long detour and illusion. It, yeah, it was the, the illusion of a great war, but it wasn't. 
I think it deba- I think it debased us. I think America, you're right. I think I felt the trigger was Bush v. Gore. 21st century sort of opens up with this blip. <laughs> with hanging like, chads. Hanging chads. Yeah. Like this sort of like under this this sort of like preview of how our political system was starting to glitch out. Yeah. And the dot com bubble burst around that same time. Yeah. And so I feel like that was the first like crisis that kind of t- started a domino effect that started tipping into bigger things. And then 9-11, of course, happened very shortly after Bush v. Gore. And I think people understood that th- those are somehow connected. Looking back that, you know, had 9-11 occurred either be like at a different point or had Gore been elected that we might have had a different reaction. So there was this understanding that those two events kind of go together. Right. The outcome was determined by both of those events, you know, and then 9-11, of course, actually led in its own way to the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because of 9-11, like we, st- we started on this road of like, you know, massively inflating debt and all this stuff, that crisis. And that led us to Trump. I feel like it was just like ever since 2000 started, it's just been like one crisis after another that just led us here. I feel that way too. And a lot of the things that we thought were going to take a long time were just hypotheticals are becoming real. And now I think like people, Asian Americans have talked a lot about internment and, you know, the possibility of those things happening again to Asians. I mean, obviously they happen to Muslim Americans and, and such, but for Asian Americans, it just seems so far off. Like, like really like interning. But now I think, you know, we're actually around to the point where we got to start thinking about that stuff for real again. Yeah. I mean, they, they are basically interning some of these scientists. Yeah. They're blackballing them, blacklisting them. Throwing them in jail. You know, these are highly, highly apolitical people. Like all the scientists that I know, especially the Asian ones, like they go into science because they just want, they do not want anything to do with politics at all. They don't even want to play like office politics. They just want to do the work, you know, get whatever rewards they can on merit alone. Like it is actually more of a meritocracy than most fields. Right. Mm-hmm. This is like the one place where you can succeed in on a meritocratic basis and be recognized by the white elites as an elite in your own right, even as an Asian in this country. And that is being taken away. I don't really mourn it that much just because like, in a way, this that conception of America was never true. Yeah. There always was underneath. I think of, I think of America a bit as the Terminator where there is a sort of fleshy human layer to it, but that's not really what's animating America. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something a lot more sinister going on and we're starting to see like when it's threatened and all that flesh is burned off, you see what's underneath. And that's what we're kind of confronted with now. Like we still want to believe that it's like a good, ver- you know, like it's a maybe hyperbole to think of America that way. But I, I really don't think it is anymore. Uh, I don't think it ever was. And no. I guess personally, it's I, I don't even like care about America or China or whatever. It's just like, what the fuck do I do now? <laughs> you know, like as a Chinese American, like. Right. <sighs> well, if you lived in a time that was like extreme, like really stable and things worked and everything. You know, you would be like Peter from Office Space. Like your your problems would be different. Your problems would be like every day's the same. There's no meaning. <laughs> what is this shit? You know, 
it would be a different sort of existential problem, you know? And I think now we're looking at a totally different kind of problem, but we don't have that problem, you know? Right. I guess, I guess it's just like, this is so unprecedented that it's scary because it's so unprecedented and I don't have a framework for how to plan out my future actions or to even process some of the stuff that's going on. Does anybody? No, but Mm -hmm. I feel particularly attacked (laughs) as a Chinese American. What if you were black? Yes, I feel the same way. Yeah. Or, I mean, honestly, what if you were like white? I think, I feel like, I mean, it's kind of taboo on, if you're on one side of the political spectrum to sort of like sympathize with white people, but I'm not sympathizing with them so much as I'm trying to understand like, you know, they also in their way feel under attack. Mm-hmm. That's why they're so angry is like they had all these entitlements promised to them. And that's all smoke and mirrors. They're realizing that it's all smoke and mirrors. Whereas I guess for us, it's different. Like there, there were no promises. There were less promises. But yeah, I think it would be even harder uh, psychologically for white people in a way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, as terrible as all this stuff is going on, I mean, I think the prop, like the position that I think we've taken a lot of times, you know, doing this pod is like more. It's not so much about how awful Asian Americans' position is in America, but so much as like how come we can't face up to it? Like how come we can't allow ourselves to understand that? Like you know. Yeah, yeah, that's my complaint. Is just like the boba liberals that I see, they're just like. They're still they're still living in you know like the problems of uh, the early aughts or even like the problems yeah, yeah. of five of years ago and it's just like yeah. okay but do you do you not see how like you your racial and class identity are now under attack you know like it's one thing for some white collar tech bro to not care about Southeast Asian refugees who are being deported but like this is you. And like, you're still harping on the same propaganda and you're still self-flagellating. And it's like, wake the fuck up. Like if this, you know, is it the name thing? Is it like, oh, I'm Brian Chan, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. different from Sherry or like, but like, no, like Sherry Chen was persecuted for saying, for sending a fucking link to a website and then when she was questioned for the fbi by the fbi she was like oh i think i met up with my classmate in 2011 and it was actually 2012 and the fbi tried to nab her for quote-unquote lying you know right right it's just ridiculous yeah it's like this is you this is us But see, that I think is our, that's the way we interact. What I'm trying to say is like, when I brought up that thing about the prosecutors, right? Uh Uh-huh. I think that's our way, our intersection with how fucked up the American justice system is. The problem is when we view this as our problem, meaning like, somehow this justice system works unless a Chinese American is involved and then it goes into, into this mode. No, that mm-hmm. this is how it always works for everyone. Yeah, right. Like, it, like if we look at Kamala Harris's uh, record and the and the problems that people are raising about what she did as a prosecutor in California, it's the same shit that has been going on forever. It's this whole "I'm tough on crime," and that means that I'm not willing to entertain the fact that there's like severe bias against black people in the in in the system. 
mm-hmm. right? So she did not want to stand up for, uh, you know, a black convict who, where there was, sub, sub, that was on death row, there was substantial evidence in his favor that he, he was actually innocent. She totally quashed that stuff because mm-hmm. she did not want to be the type of person where that would come up later at a time like now going, oh, she is sympathetic to black murderers. Mm-hmm. You can see how the the way that pro- the, the, our criminal justice system is inherently politicized is a problem. This mm-hmm. is our intersection with that problem. And so instead of saying, woe is the Chinese American and the Chinaman's chance and how America seems to always want to pogrom us and, and ethnically cleanse us. You know, this is also another way of framing it. I'm not saying that's not true, but I'm saying another way to look at it is to say, like, this is our window into how America really works. Well, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. But mm-hmm. it just seems like there isn't even an engagement on the ethnic cleansing level. That's like step one. Well, this amicus is an example of how we do engage in it, uh, I think, right? Don't you think? Yeah, I guess there there were a lot of organizations on this amicus and that was that was a positive. But I guess just in the broader community, I don't really see any kind of engagement even with this amicus, you know, and they don't go very far either. They're just like this is discrimination. But like they won't even see it as like this is ethnic cleansing in on a broader level and they won't bring it up as a critique of the overall structure, you know, Mm, of how like um, justice, the justice department and politics works in general. Like there, there's just so little, even shallow engagement that I'm seeing that it's really gross and frustrating. It is frustrating. I think we need to understand it though. You know, and I, I, I am now getting around to the idea that we should, you know, as a group, you know, plan A or whatever, Try and get over our frustrations with other Asian Americans and, and instead of, which I do all, I, I am probably the most guilty of this, uh, just expressing that frustration, which I think is fine. I mean, there, it is frustrating, but I think what comes after that? And maybe we're struggling with that. It's like, well, what comes after the, after we point out that Boba Libs are, are disengaged? I think we need to understand, like, there needs to be a real way to promote engagement. Yeah. What we need to understand is, I, you know, I do think that part of it is this understanding, this deep down understanding of futility, that there's no point in making a splash as Asian Americans because we know nobody cares, right? And I think we have to kind of like not fight against that because there is a reality to it. Nobody cares. We will never be the center of a major debate about civil rights in America. We should try. I'm not saying we shouldn't try, but I'm just saying like we do have to understand that that is kind of a reality that we have to work with. Mm -hmm. And so then, but then how do we react to it? And I think part of it is to understand like instead of trying to say like, look, we're always focused on black issues. We're always focused on these issues, but we never focus on Asian issues, which I see all the time as the framing. And I see like Asian people doing this in, in forums like, Oh, when there's racism against black people on TV, everyone like says something about it. But when, when it's, you know, against Chinese, they don't, or Asians, they don't say anything about it. It's totally fine. Okay. I'm not saying that's not true, but I'm just saying that like we need a deeper, more nuanced or strategic understanding of what's going on there, which is like, you know, it's not true that people don't care as much about uh, Asian people as they care about black people. Like that's, that's a ridiculous framing. 
there's a huge, like the bulk of white animus, racial animus is directed at black people. What I think is necessary is for us to understand to the extent where we're experiencing our own forms of persecution is to how does that align into some bigger struggle? Meaning like what of what value is that story or that idea? Right. Who values that the most? If we understand like, you know, this, we have also like a separate critique, a separate condemnation of white institutional power. Who does that help? I think it does help people who are out there struggling against cops, you know, struggling mm-hmm. against. Yeah. No, that, that's my feeling too, is that um, those in power, they're just like, like, let's say we have like a wall of defense, you know, against a flood or something. Like those in power, they're just like trying to poke holes into that wall, just trying to like get whatever they want, poke whatever hole that they can. And everybody else is like, when it's their like section of the wall and they see a hole, they plug it. And like when Asians see a hole, we just kind of like let it stay unplugged. And like that is going to destroy the wall at the end of the day. We need, it's not about who whites, white liberals care about more. It's about like, we need to stand up and push back against our rights being violated because if we don't, that will be the avenue by which everybody else's rights are slowly chipped away and destroyed. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Because that, that's how our legal system works. One of the things that we uh, Asian Americans don't tend not to understand, and I think minorities tend not to understand, is I think like because we're marginalized, we view the mainstream from which we are marginalized as a sort of unified whole or what they call monolith, right? Like that there is this thing called America that we are marginalized from. And I think that that is like not really the case. What What's going on is that America is not a unified whole. It is a struggle. It's like a historical struggle that's been going on ever since the very beginning. It's not a unified whole from which we're marginalized. It's a struggle which we don't really understand. And therefore, we don't participate in the struggle. And therefore, we side with power. Yeah. If you don't participate in the struggle, you are siding with, because again, like, you know, we've, we've talked about the, the reasoning behind that, right? Is like the one in power doesn't need you to do anything except not do anything, right? That is mo- model minorityness, you know, like that yeah. is the complicity with power that other people are criticizing, you know, us for. You know, like we can support other groups, but like the most useful thing we can do for other groups and even for, you know, like white people for their rights is to stick up for ourselves to actually fucking scream when we're being persecuted. Uh, Yeah, right. To use our resources and mobilize the way that uh, we have. And and part of it is we need to give ourselves uh, some credit what we have been doing like the you know when we talked about the wechat yeah the wechat, uh, US WeChat line. so like they should be given credit we should give them credit asian americans should give them credit for what they've done i mean we we have and like i think talking about this amicus like we are giving credit to that but i just i want to see more well then you know what you need to do right like if you if you know what you want to see <laughs> then you have kind of an answer to your own question right mm-hmm 
the uh yeah the, the idea i think here now and and i think that it's been a problem ever since especially when trump was elected that there's a question that we can no longer avoid is like being american involves making a choice there's no default thing where you're just like oh i don't take a side or i there is definitely like an asian uh mentality of like you know like you said about these scientists like i just want to do my work and not mm-hmm. participate in politics and not you know yeah. Well, you are. You are participating <laughs> in politics, even if you're not. Yeah. I'm actually really happy to see some of these scientists actually coming out and making statements. Like that um, Dr. Sue, you know, that was interviewed, he was such a goddamn model minority before, right? He was just like, oh, I believe in the meritocratic US as an institution. Like, this is a place of freedom, blah, blah, blah. And then he was directly persecuted and now he's like no we got to fight this and yeah yeah if there's a plus that comes from this it's that it's actually getting these previously apolitical model minority type um white collar asians to mobilize yeah. but it has to be there needs yeah. to be more like you can't just see these chinese uh, um scientists with chinese names as somebody who's not like you like this is a white collar elite professional so if that's who you are like they are targeting you next like immediately yeah my my frustration is at that level though is that when we do get around and this is where i think we're situated in a way now is like you know the asian liberal who gets awakened to this and starts fighting a lot of times what their belief is, is like, you know, this is about siding with the good whites versus the bad whites, right? Like that, right. There's, this is a liberal versus conservative thing. This is a Democrat versus Republican thing. And it's not because the the real persecution ramp up, you know, it actually occurs under Democratic presidents. Yeah. And under Clinton was, uh, was when Holy under Obama was, uh, you know, a lot like Sherry Chen, et cetera. That was under uh, Obama. That was under Obama. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that this is a Trump phenomenon is not true. It's not true. This is a American phenomenon. The problem with the Asian liberal is that it still fundamentally believes that there's a good white versus bad white thing going on, that there's like a blue versus red thing, that everything falls within the two-party dichotomy of America. And then America's constructed of a good blue side and a bad red side. And that's not what is going on. It's more, much more complicated than that. And I think what we lack as a group is political literacy. And I think that's what we need to do. Yeah. And I think as a group, we actually have the most legitimate claim to critiquing the entire system overall, you know, because it is not a partisan issue. Whereas with every other identity, there was some protection from the liberals in some way like but this like nobody's here for us so it actually is the one thing that we can do is to say look this is a completely like systemic issue like it's a problem with the department of justice and it's a problem with how politics works in this country it is a problem with the u.s as a whole and not partisan issue like that's actually like a very strong and valid claim that we can make as a group, if we choose to make it. It's a valid claim, but we need a theory too. And I think that's what we're missing. And I, and I say that my biggest frustration when I went online was this understanding that Asian Americans, we don't really have an intellectual culture, meaning like 
we are academic. We're smart in that sense. Like we're gifted academically, but that doesn't mean we're intellectual, meaning like we don't really have our own thoughts, right? We don't have our own interpretations of the world and we don't have even a tradition of wanting to develop that. I guess that's what I, you know, like we want to do with plan A is to create that just even if it's right. rudimentary yeah. just like mm-hmm. create that foundation and a, and a habit of mm-hmm. doing that you know mm-hmm. yeah what do you mean by theory though Me- meaning like a way to interpret what's going on right like yeah for for example like now i think like a, the chinese americans should be in my mind leading the case leading the discussion as to how fascism is taking hold at least from the direction of this sinophobia Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I think that there, there, this is that's a major telltale sign of what's going on in America, mm-hmm. and it's incumbent on us to sort of like as particularly sensitive to that issue, right? That yeah, that, I feel like the amicus doesn't go far enough because it's only it just stops at uh, racism towards Asian Americans and Chinese Americans. Like mm-hmm. it needs to go further. We like we need. I mean, I guess that's the that's the problem with like these organizations is like they're not they're not gonna go that far because they're for the most part um boba liberals right they're still pleading to the good white liberal you know Mm -hmm. good white person uh hey look out for our specific persecutions our specific discriminations but like i think you and i are probably the only people talking about this at the level of fascism and like there needs to be more a more broad understanding that this is what's happening i think there are people are doing it but i don't think we're we're finding each other or or we are starting to and i think there's a lot of my experience on twitter and online is like and i and i and i don't like to denigrate uh social media because i think it has a super important function Mm -hmm. there's a lot of noise but you can find signal on it if you want and i've seen that there are a lot of younger asian americans tons of them who see through it that's that's good. But they're younger. They're younger. Definitely not the older crowd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think that's the other part is like, you know, we've got to stop caring about what these old farts are doing that have board positions at these, you know, nonprofit, you know, civil rights organizations or whatever. They're going to just do what they do. They're going to do what they've done forever. And it's fine that, you know, they're doing important work. I mean, yeah. these young people on Twitter are not going to file amicus briefs and they're not, right. going, you know, they're not going to bring lawsuit against you know, like they're doing important work and they should be allowed to do it. But on the other hand, we need to take it a step further. Yeah. And, 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 and allow young people, I think, encourage, I think, young people to not shy away from engaging in difficult politics, you know, mm-hmm. like thinking for themselves and not backing down that they should get back up for when they get slapped down by white mainstream or Asian mainstream or whatever for thinking outside of accepted norms. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that they're thinking things that are correct, I think, you know, we should have a community of people that supports that. But when they think shit that's wrong uh, or that's problematic, uh, they should not be demonized for it, but instead that that should find its way into some kind of discourse where it's discredited. Mm-hmm. Not the human being who thought of it, but the idea. Yeah. We don't have that culture. I see it in other groups. I think Jewish Americans have that culture. I think black Americans have that culture. I don't think we have it. And I think people want it, but we've got to like foster it. Yeah. Agreed. That's what I think we should be doing. I, I just, I just think like, 
like we are we are part of something going on. Like I don't know exactly what it is, but it's. I was reading this book called um, Thucydides Trap. Pretty fa- famous book now by Grant Allison, talking about whether the U.S. and China are destined to have a war. Graham Allison was writing about how if you look into patterns of history, a lot of times like on the rise up, like when a civilization is coming up, there's a lot of like self-reinforcing loops, virtuous cycles. Like one thing will buttress another, will buttress another. And it's a sort of spiral up. Mm-hmm. And everything seems to be going in the right direction for some reason. Everything seems to be making something else better and vice versa. It's this circular virtuous cycle. But the opposite is true. When things start coming down, it seems like everything just interacts with everything else in a very destructive way. Mm-hmm. Right? So not only is this going wrong, but that's going wrong. And then because that's going wrong, that's going wrong. And so everything starts to seem to fall. I guess what I would say is if you have a very narrow focus, like if you only want to read and understand the news bit at a time, issue by issue, you'll never understand what's going on. You just think like, oh my. And I think the result is this idea that 2020 is somehow a cursed year. Somehow the stars align so that 2020 is when all this bad shit decided to happen. It's not really what's going on. The reason it's happening in 2020 or whatever and all at once is because there's self-reinforcing cycles. So when it rains, it pours. I mean, I think we got all new, new wisdom in that. And I think what we are missing, uh, especially Asian Americans is, and I think what we're craving is bigger, more systemic understandings of what's going on. I don't think just like policy positions work anymore. I don't think it's just like, Oh yeah, I'm against this, but I'm for that. Like voter issues. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think, I think Americans, I think Americans in general, are craving that. And that's what is lacking in the mass consciousness. And Mm. that's, that's um, by design too. (laughs) The people in power don't want us to know what's going on. They don't want us to think for ourselves. Yeah. Media is not going to provide it because media is part of what's going on. Right. So we have to have these kinds of dialogues. We have, we have to be the ones putting it out there and creating the platforms and the communities to have these discussions. And to, and to encourage people to think for themselves. I think, yeah, I think, yeah. I think that's what's missing. I think it's this fear of going out as a human being and developing your own ideas about what's going on. You know, yeah. I think we're too, too reliant on depending on someone else to provide that for us and then choosing among all the different ones. And I think we just don't have a tradition of doing it ourselves. But I think that's what people really want. That's my last thought. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And uh, I think we should just keep doing what we're doing. I'm sure we And will. hope for the best. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, I don't really foresee, you know, like, going back to China or going back to Asia as, like, that good of a plan. I mean, unless it is a good plan for you, but for most people, I don't think it's a good plan. It's not tenable for most people. And like, I think if we stay, we need to just do our best to do what we can for ourselves and other people. Yeah, for sure. All right. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this episode. Please rate us on all the podcast listening platforms. Uh, Donate to our Patreon. All right. Have a great night. Bye. See ya.
Thank you.